Use your pew Bibles. Let's remain standing for the reading of the scriptures. There's three portions. Uh, your pew Bibles, page 87. Book of Exodus, second book of the Old Testament. Exodus 34 and verses 5 through 9. Listen to how God describes himself. That's the meaning of, of his name. Verse 5, Exodus 34, beginning at verse 5, Pew Bibles, page 87. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is God preaching. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love or covenant faithfulness and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, covenant love, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses And brothers and sisters, this is the response to God. You don't go to Starbucks and get a latte. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Talk about a beautiful model of the sinner's prayer, and that's it. New Testament reading, first one, Matthew 18, and verses 21 to 35. Now you can follow Pew Bibles, page 979, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Or you you may just want to let uh, this parable that Jesus gives You may want to just listen and let its impact hit you. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Notice it's the servants who are in debt. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. That's a lot. That's a lot of wealth, folks. And since he could not pay, His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, begging him, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity or mercy for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But... When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is basically a few cents. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother 
from your heart. As I said, you let a text like that just powerfully impact you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, and here's where we will be stationed for a while this morning. Matthew 5 and verse 7, page 962. Blessed, that is under the smile of God, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Our Lord, we can't pray better than what we've sung. So take all of these things of the Spirit's magnificent, fulsome work and do that work in our midst as your word is preached to the glory of the great preacher, the one who wields the mighty two-edged sword and gets his victories. Get his victory in us, we pray, and we ask these things in his glorious name, Amen. Amen. More than one observer, and observers in various fields, more than one observer has noted that the transition from immaturity to maturity or from adolescence to adulthood is always connected with a turn from self to others. And, and it's interesting to see that. It's one of the reasons why historically uh, the, the older uh, age of, of what we know of as teenagers has been called the heroic age. There's, there's this desire to reach out and to be of help to others. And that was true in the past. I'm not sure how true it is today in which many, many, many adolescents don't experience this change. Uh, one of the reasons is the growth inhibitor called video games. Uh, the other day I was listening to a podcast about video games. I don't do video games. I don't have time for them. I'm not interested in them. I am stunned at the millions of hours that especially young people and too many adults play on video games. And the point being made in what was not a Christian podcast is this feeds a self-centeredness which isn't according to maturity. It's very interesting that Martin Luther, the German reformer, said famously, sin curves us inward, makes us focus on ourselves, and that at best always leads to, to an immaturity. Well, look at the being attitudes, as we have called them in Matthew chapter 5, that you have either in your pew Bible or your own personal Bible, and you'll notice that that the first three of the Beatitudes, there's eight of them, are, are, are very, very much, I don't want to say they're self-focused, but, but they certainly focus on, on the individual. As an individual, you are poor in spirit. You realize how bankrupt you are before God, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. And it is individually that we mourn, but we are also comforted. It is very individually that we are self-controlled under pressure in the name of Christ, with a confidence that the Lord works all these things out for his glory, um, and they will inherit the earth. Those tend to be very much focused on self, but they don't stop you there. They draw, make you draw on the resources that are in Christ and in the gospel. Now, when you come to being attitudes 4 through 8, which begins with what we learned the last time, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You'll notice now it's a turning away from yourself. Uh, righteousness, as you'll see, is somewhat self-focused, but it's also focused on others, and certainly in the nature of the case, while we have to be merciful to ourselves, you usually think of mercy as focused on others. And when you come to these two, Remember, there's eight of the Beatitudes, three before it, three after it. If, if, if this was, if this was a, a heart, okay, this would be the bivalve of the heart. If the being attitudes is a beating heart, it's your life, it's not law, then the bivalves would be these two, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful. What's righteousness? Well, righteousness is basically what's right. 
before God. And what's right before God is you realize you're not right and that you need a, a perfect righteousness, which is what Christ gives. We call that justification. We are declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's certainly that. It's interesting. Justification has been called the gate of paradise. Isn't that great? Because here, here's paradise, glory, and it demands 100% absolute perfection. And you say, Lord, it can't be open to me. Oh, yes, it is. In Christ, who gives you his righteousness, the gate, the gate of paradise. But righteousness is also to others, okay? And when Paul talks about grace reigning through righteousness, and there's different ways you can interpret that, but, but at least part of that is grace reigns in such a way that you're not only declared righteous, justification, but that you do what is right, practical outworkings of righteousness. That's what it means that grace reigns through righteousness. Now see, when Jesus is your Savior, he justifies you, he's your Lord. He better be, or he's not your Savior. If he's your Lord, he reigns over you. And if he reigns, over you, you want to do his commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Those are the things that we called righteousness. And brothers and sisters, there's a big difference between cheap grace and free grace. Cheap grace, I'm sorry to say, is what's being marketed at many so-called evangelical churches. Cheap grace never calls you to repentance. Cheap grace never calls you to obedience. Cheap grace is just plain accepting. It, it, has, it has been, been called uh, just helping people on the journey, embracing the journey. What if the journey is to hell? And see, folks, cheap grace is not the same thing as free grace. One, one person, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson, who said this, that a, a Savior, that, that our world hears a Savior who leaves you pretty much as you are instead of actually saving you from your sin. You will call his name Jesus because he will embrace your journey. Baloney. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Okay? And when that happens, well, what's the opposite? Well, then you're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay? Now, that, remember, we're talking about the bivalve okay, of, of the heart. Of, of the being attitudes, the be attitudes, what you are, um, this leads inevitably to mercy. Um, so that's verse Matthew 5 and verse 7. And, and um, even, even as righteousness, okay, righteousness, righteousness gives you a desire to do right, well, certainly a desire to be right with God, a desire to, to do right to other people around you, to do right individually. And it makes you want to see what is right done around you. And it makes you want to see what is right in some way established in the world, right? So, so that's one valve of the heart. What's the other valve? Well, in the nature of the case, it's this thing called mercy. Blessed are the merciful. They are full of mercy. Remember, it's being attitudes. It's, it's what you are. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, um, here's where David helped me with the sermon outline. Uh, yesterday, when, when David was being examined, and he knows he needs to do better in this, all of us do, but it was striking as he was being examined and he was giving his very fine answers from the scriptures and sometimes from the catechism. I thought to myself, my, my mind is so prone to think in, in terms of, of this catechism, questions and answers. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, 
He does, in renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. Wow. You can't beat that definition of what it is when the Lord draws us to himself. What is the work of creation? God's work of creation is making all things from nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power and all very good. You can't state the work of creation better than that. That's catechism, okay? So it's, it's a question, and that question in the nature of the case prompts an answer. Poor David, when I was going through his exam with him last week, I was trying to think of these things that I was supposed to be teaching him, but I couldn't remember the catechism question, and so it didn't prompt the answer. But you see how prone we are. We are like this. Questions will prompt certain answers, and that, that is kind of a, a hallowed way of, of teaching. That is a, oh, it is a, it is a, one day, folks, you're just going to have to put me out to pasture, but, but I'm not quite there yet, okay. Uh, but that's a kind of a, a tried and true way, really going back to the, the Greek uh, teacher Socrates. You ask questions, and that primes people for answers. Okay, so here's where David helped me with the outline. I'm going to use a catechetical method in the sermon today. There's, there's five, I think it's five, well, actually six questions I'm going to ask, okay? And then we'll answer them more or less briefly uh, because we're dealing with what mercy is, okay? So catechetical method, that'll prepare you for, uh, here's news for you, in the new year we're all going to be working on the shorter catechism. So this will prepare you anyway for the catechetical method, okay? So question number one. When this says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, does this rule out justice? And here's your answer. Ready? No. How's that? That's a pretty easy one. Does this rule out justice? The answer is no. And this is one of the reasons why, uh, especially singing psalms are important, nothing against hymns. Our hymnody is very much gospel-influenced. It's influenced by mercy and love, and that's wonderful. God's songs sing of justice as well. And one of the reasons why some of them can be uncomfortable to us is because we don't think as much as we should about the justice of God. Psalm 101a, of mercy and of justice. Oh Lord, I'll sing to you. And they're often linked in the scriptures, mercy and of justice. Romans 13, the magistrate wields the sword. He is an avenger of wrath on those who practice evil. Well, if that's the case, then certainly we, we, mercy does not cancel out justice. But justice in that sense is not your sphere, folks. Your neighbor may be a horrible criminal, you have no right to shoot your neighbor. You have a right to help see the person's arrested. And if you're a prosecuting attorney, you have a right to seek justice. But be very careful, folks. You know, of mercy and of justice, O oh Lord, I'll sing to you. That, that's flowing from God himself, who uses usually human instruments for mercy and justice. It doesn't rule out mercy of justice, but the focus here is on mercy. Exodus 34. This is the way, how do you view God, folks? Some people, when they think of God, and especially this will come in certain church situations, everything is fear. Everything is dread. Who God proclaims his name. And as he proclaims his name for many, it's I am the God of anger. I am the God of wrath. I am the God of judgment. I am the God who hates you for your sin. That's not the way God proclaims his name. Amen. I am the Lord, gracious and merciful, full of kindness and compassion. You read that, listen again in Exodus 34. This is what God says himself. Yes, he says, I'll by no means clear the guilty. That incidentally has been called by theologians in the past his strange work. God in a fallen world, yes, God judges, but because of his son, his primary work is mercy. The Lord, the Lord, a God 
merciful and gracious. We'll talk about the difference between mercy and grace in a minute. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. That's not all that's involved in mercy. That's part of it, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's where justice is. There's where the cross comes in. Folks, if you didn't have the cross embedded in human history, and there's no place to go for grace, then, then you go from your guilt to having no forgiveness. But because of the cross embedded in history, you go to that rest stop, and there is forgiveness, okay? So, so, so the, but, and that's the focus there is on mercy. Hosea 6 and verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You're driving to worship. And here is someone by the side of the road, and the person has a flat tire, and the person needs help. You see, it's a particularly older person needs help. What's more important, that you get to worship on time or that you stop and help that person? Hello? You stop and help the person. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, which is part of our worship language. Hosea 6 and verse Hosea uh, Micah 6 and verse 8 He has told you O man what is good What does the Lord require of you Yes to do justice in that sense it's to do the right thing okay to love mercy and what's necessary for both to walk humbly with your God the focus, brothers and sisters, in the scriptures, again, this is a bivalve of the heart of the Beatitudes, the focus is on mercy. And here's the good thing about it. If it wasn't, you and I would probably be in hell right now. Amen. And let's be honest about this, folks. Instead of God in some way going along with us on our journey, Thank God he stops us in our journey when it's destructive. And in his own mercy, he saves us. By his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So thank, thank God. Thank God for mercy. Um, again, the question, does this rule out justice? No, but the focus is on mercy. I, I learned this, obviously we'll never forget it, when I was in uh, Egypt some years ago. And, and in the prayer time, it was a prayer conference, and I, don't, I can't pray in Arabic. The only group that prayed in English was a group of Sudanese women who were there, and so I prayed with them. They spoke English, and I found out about them. They were there. They had to flee Sudan because their husbands had been captured and they were forced out, and not a few of them, their last sight of their husband was being crucified publicly. And so I said, do you pray for justice? And they looked at me like I was from a wrong planet, and they said, we pray for mercy on our captors. Now, you see both, really. But they knew God's default, and I missed it. God's default it is mercy. So when you think of God, what do you think of, folks? In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls God, and we'll come back to this text, the Father of mercies. If, if he brings forth anything into the world, it's mercy. And, and brothers and sisters, it's because of Christ. If there were no Christ ordained to come into the world to save a fallen people, you're not going to have mercy. You're just going to have justice. So no, it doesn't rule out justice. Question number two in this catechism under mercifulness. Is mercy the same as grace? I don't think you stay up late at night trying to figure that out yourself, but this is the kind of thing pastors and theologians think about. But there's an important difference here, and that we might find you come before the throne, that we might find mercy and grace to help us 
in our time of need. So the scriptures, the scriptures do make a distinction. Uh, is mercy the same as grace? That's your catechism question. And here's your answer. No. Got that one? You, you better do well on your exam when it comes up. Uh, because grace, grace does what? Grace deals with sin and guilt. The unmerited favor of God in Christ, where he, where he deals with your sin at the cross. He deals with your guilt at the cross. And he calls you to come to the cross and be united with Christ by grace through faith. Grace deals with sin and guilt. Mercy deals with the effects of sin, both in yourself and in others. And not just those who sin, but those who are the victims of sin. Mercy deals with the effects of sin, if I could put it this way, sin by us and to us. There are people, doesn't mean they're not sinners, but they're also the victims of sin. We'll give you the classic illustration in, in just a bit. Grace, grace speaks of pardon and of cleansing and of reinstatement to God's favor. That's grace. Pardon and cleansing and reinstatement. Mercy speaks of help and healing and cure and relief. We have mercy ministries by the diaconate in which they're involved with helping and healing and curing and, and relieving people. Okay? Now, classic example, the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10 and verses 30 to 37, where Jesus gives the, you know, the big question is, who is your neighbor? Uh, but Jesus gives the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, what's the Good Samaritan about? Well, yeah, and we're going to come back to this. But, uh, but, but here's a man, he's been beaten, he's been robbed, he's been stripped, and he's lying down by the side of the road as if he's dead. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious. This is a man in need of mercy. And so you have two categories of people. You, you have the, the priest and the Levite. Th these were the ones who were so concerned about their officially being holy, they didn't give a tinker's damn about practical holiness. All right? So it's true of many clergy today. And so they, they, they see this person, and they cross the street, and they walk on the other side to go past him. Okay? God forbid they should be seen walking past the man right there, that would look terribly unrighteous, and so they cross the street and do it. Then a Samaritan comes. The Israelites didn't like Samaritans. They were half-breeds. The Samaritans were those who lived on the other side of the tracks. You didn't associate with them. Now, you assume that this person by the side of the road is probably a Jew. And, and what does the Samaritan do? He crosses the street, and he, he, he has oil and wine, which is medical treatment, and, and he pours that into the wounds, both as an antiseptic and, and to make the person feel a bit better. And, and then he takes this person and puts the person on his colt and, and takes the colt to an inn. A place for relief. An inn would have been, in many cases, somewhat like a hospital. And he pays. He gives money to the innkeeper to take care of this person who was by to the side of the room. He says, no, look, I'm going to come back, and, I'm, and anything else, I'll pay the debt. Wow! That's mercy. Mercy isn't just saying it. Mercy's doing it. Okay? And then, of course, Jesus says, well, who's the neighbor? And obviously, the neighbor. But we, that's for another day. The real Good Samaritan is somebody else. But we'll come back to it. Okay, so connected with that, though, people say, well, then is grace the same? So is, is mercy the same as grace? No, there's, there's difference in, 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 in the, the, what these do. So other people say, well, then grace is the same as kindness. Well, what is kindness? I love this. Kindness, one wag wrote, is when a friend calls you when you're well. That's kindness. Mercy is when a friend calls on you when you're sick. Okay? So that's a difference. If you want a practical way to see the difference between the two, obviously mercy is kind, uh, but not all kindness is merciful. Some kindness, in fact, sticks its nose up at mercy. Question number three in your catechism, but this is not a yes or no answer. 
So what is mercy? What is mercy? Well, Luke 10 and verse 37, it's interesting that the Good Samaritan is the one who has compassion. That's the being attitude. The word literally means intestines. And in his insides, he felt, he felt compassion for this, this person by the side of the road. But then the Lord says he showed the neighbor is the one who showed mercy to him. So that's the illustration of mercy in the scriptures. What is mercy? Mercy seeks to relieve the consequences of sin in the lives of others. So that's not a yes or no answer. Mercy seeks to relieve the consequences of sin in the lives of others, sinners who hurt themselves. The way of the transgressor is hard. What does that warrant from the Lord? Grace, forgiveness, pardon, reinstatement, but also mercy, and that comes from you. Okay, Mercy comes from God, but he uses you as well. Mercy is the way in which mercy is that something that seeks to relieve the consequences of sin in the lives of others, those who sin, and those who are sinned against. Good Samaritan again. The Good Samaritan didn't go after the robbers, if they were still there. He didn't go after them. That's a prosecuting attorney's work. And, and he didn't, he, he, he didn't um, bellyache. No, nobody else helped this person. Why didn't anybody else trust this person? Look at how cruel a society. Look at how self-centered as he continues to walk by. He doesn't do that. He goes to the person and in a very practical way seeks to relieve his distress. Or if you want this, this is, a, this is an alternative answer, but it's very close to the other. Mercy, I love this one, is putting on an apron. Okay, Even men can and ought to do this. Putting on an apron and doing what you can to restore dignity to those whose lives have been ruined by sin. Putting on an apron and doing what you can to restore dignity to a person whose life has been ruined, broken by either his or her own sin. Why do I say that? Our default can be, yeah, that person's a real mess. You see the way the person lived his life? No wonder. That's not mercy. That's hate. Think about yourself, folks. Imagine if God dealt with you the way you dealt with that person. So it's the person who sinned, or as in many cases, and usually it's both, a person who has been sinned against. Now there's where Jesus, Jesus is the good Samaritan, right? Jesus is the great good Samaritan. But God the Father is also a good Samaritan. He is the Father of all mercies. And God the Holy Spirit is also full of mercy. It's called the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, the encourager. He comes alongside of you and ministers to your own particular need. If you will, God's mercy is God putting on an apron and doing what he can, and he sure can do a lot, to restore dignity to a person whose life has been broken or ruined by sin. Is that your view of God? If it is, that'll make you a light in the world. That's what people need. They don't need someone to help them along on their journey to hell. They need someone to stop them and tell them they need the grace of God in Christ and not to stop there, but to offer practical mercy to help them in their time of need. Uh, the book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, which I commend to you very, very heartily, 
the book by Dane Ortland, which is really based on a Puritan classic by Thomas Goodwin, The Heart of Christ. But this is, this is Dane Ortland quoting uh, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan writer. God has a multitude of all kinds of mercies. As our hearts, listen to this, as our hearts and the devil are the father of variety of sins, so God is the father of variety of mercies. There is no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. As there are varieties of miseries which the creature is subject to, so he has in himself, that is, God has in himself, a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies, divided into several promises in the Scripture, which are but as many boxes of this treasure, the caskets of a variety of mercies. A casket is a box to hold something precious, like jewels. You used to talk about a jewelry casket, or hold a body, right? a casket of variety of mercies. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to make it alive. If you're sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you're sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. As large and as various as are our wants, so large and various are his mercies. So, we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need, a mercy for every need, all the mercies that are in his own heart. He has transplanted into several beds in the garden of the promises where they grow, and he has an abundance of variety of them suited to all variety of the diseases of the soul. I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful, merciful. Okay. So there's your answer to what mercy is. Question number four. Where does it come from? Where does mercy come from? And not just where does mercy come from, where does your mercifulness come from? Here's your answer. It is the proof-giving result of receiving the mercy of God in Christ. Where does mercy for you come from? What is it? It's the proof-giving result of your receiving the mercy of God in Christ. I will not take the time to read, you've already heard it, but the power of Matthew 18, 21 to verse 35. Here's a man, and, and basically he has debt that would rival the credit card debt of many students who have uh, bought the line of just getting loans to go to college. Hello? You're supposed to pay back a loan. But that's not what you're told when you go into over $100,000 of debt to get a degree in psychology so that you can work at McDonald's. This is a person who is in huge debt huge, such that if it's going to be paid, he sells his whole family into slavery for the rest of their lives. The master, who represents God, the master forgives him of all of that debt. You would think that this man would go out and want to be merciful to every single thing that breathed as he went, uh-uh. He got somebody, somebody owes him a few cents, and he basically wants to choke the guys. You're going to pay it all back. And if you don't, you go to prison. Or worse. Did he really know what mercy was about? No. Took advantage of it, didn't know what it was. And the father says, uh, you didn't learn your lesson. When I was merciful to you, you're supposed to be merciful to others. You'll have to learn your lesson in prison or worse. Now that's, that's basically the idea. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. doesn't mean that your mercy is the ground of your getting mercy, but it's the demonstration that you have received mercy. How do you treat others? Do you reflect God's treatment of you? Now that'll make us all stop 
along the way before we do things. So where does it come from? It's the proof-giving result of receiving the mercies of God in Christ. And then the fifth question, again, we've already gotten to it. Blessed are the, are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, then, is this the way that I obtain mercy? Well, no, because you wouldn't be merciful in this sense if you hadn't already received mercy, right? It's a being attitude. But what God is saying here is, as he speaks of forgiveness, you're meant to reflect my mercy in the world. If you don't, you really haven't received my mercy. And when you do, you should have the encouragement, as expensive as it is, as hard as it is, as frankly as you may do this and not be thanked, you may have people that you're merciful to kick you in the teeth, literally or figuratively. You're going to receive mercy. You wouldn't be that way if you hadn't received it. And because you display it in the world, you will also receive mercy, especially at the last day. In other words, you demonstrate my mercy, and that's the way your faith is to be shown in the world. This isn't payment, folks. This is promise. You're merciful to others. I promise you. You'll obtain mercy like you can never imagine. Now, this is something to develop in another day. The Apostle Paul emphasizes faith. We're declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. James says, don't you know that a man is justified by his works and not by faith only? And that makes people swallow hard. It shouldn't. Paul is talking about how we are made right with God by grace through faith in Christ alone. James, even the text there, is speaking about how you demonstrate that faith to the world. You're declared righteous. You, will, you are declared that you are righteous. You are right with God. Then you will show it by being right in your life. And they're both true. Your righteousness is not the ground of your justification, but your justification is that which begins the process called sanctification, by which your righteousness is worked out. Why? That the world will see it. It's the way of saying Jesus really is alive and at work in, in the world. So we can develop that at another time. But, but um, is this the way you obtain mercy? No. It's a demonstration, but at the last day, then you'll receive mercy. Now, a few questions. Do you insulate yourself from others? Long Islanders are great at this. They've got it down to an art. The fence. The distance. Now it's the, the earbuds or the headphones. I, I, don't, I don't talk to my neighbors. I don't want to see my neighbors. In fact, I know if I saw my neighbors, I probably couldn't stand my neighbors. I suggest to you that that is institutionalized anti-mercy. It is institutionalized anti-Christianity. Now I've got a fence around the house. I struggled until when we put it up. But I realized there is a place to be quiet. Don't you insulate yourself from the needs of others. If you do, let me introduce you to a Levite and a priest who did exactly the same thing. Across the street, well, Long Island, that doesn't make much difference. It does in New York City. Here is a needy, and I'm not talking about those that are phonies, because there is that, you deal with that differently, but a genuine, genuine need, and I'll cross the street. That's not being merciful. That's insulating yourself from being merciful. It is, becomes institutionalized anti-mercy. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for that person by the side of the road? To spend some money on a person you don't even know? 
to take some time when you can't slip a piece of tissue paper between the items in your schedule? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are you willing to pay something? The obvious question, and as a preacher, you have to ask these things. But pastor, are there limits? Yes, there are limits. There are limits to our physical abilities to show mercy. You come to a new stage in your life. You don't have the finances that you had before. You still have to pay your bills. The way you show mercy may be altered by that. That's not what I'm talking about. Limits, yes, to physical abilities, but no limits to your spiritual desires. Practical thing that you can do, you read, you hear of victims, innocent victims in Gaza. Well, no, you can't go and help them by the side of the road. Do you at least pray for them? There's no limit to your spiritual responsibilities when it comes to meekness. And when you're not sure, saying, Lord, how can I be of help? How can I be of help in this situation that's on your heart? And the Lord will answer. So we're not being unrealistic, but we are being Christ-like. Now let me end with this final question. Pastor, this is the kind of question a pastor really loves. Can you really impress this on me? You know, good preachers, boy, they can screw the word into you when it's there when you leave. Can you impress this on me? The answer is yes. Okay, the answer is the catechism answer. You are beaten, robbed, and stripped. That's what you and I are by nature. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the evil triumvirate, they have the way of bruising and scarring you from within, unlike anything that a baseball bat can do. And that will break you. It will rob you of everything that you have. And it will strip you of all of your dignity. That's what the world and the flesh and the devil do, and they're masters at it. And that's you and me by nature, by the side of the road. Now along comes a Democrat. And the Democrat sees you by the side of the road and says, uh-uh, there's a conservative he or she deserves it, and the Democrat crosses the street. Then comes the Republican. And the Republican says, anybody in that situation, they, they deserved it. And they cross the street. And then a Samaritan comes. And the Samaritan comes to you even though that Samaritan is not very well liked by the culture. But that Samaritan reaches out to those who have been beaten and robbed and stripped. And he puts the oil and the wine of healing inside of you. And he takes you up in his own arms and whether he uses some other way of doing it or normally it's by himself, he takes you to a house. And he says, I've not only paid for everything necessary for the healing for this broken person, but anything else that it costs in this house, I'll pay it. And my credit is good. That good Samaritan as from the early church on, was recognized. That good Samaritan is Jesus. And he didn't cross the street. You come to him. He comes to you 
in all of your weakness and need. And he gives you the balm of Gilead. And he gives you that wine that not only makes the heart glad, but it is the antiseptic against sin. And he doesn't need a horse. He carries you himself to the house that we know of in this world as the church, mm -hmm. where there's brothers and sisters and others to help. And Jesus says, don't worry about the cost. I already paid it. And whatever it costs you to do it, I'll pay it. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know him that way? Because that's what he is. And that's why of the two valves in this heart of the being attitudes, yes, the first one of that valve, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being right with God through Christ, walking in a right way in the world for the benefit of the world, hungering, thirsting after righteousness. Catch the beating of the heart of that. If you have that, the other side of the valve is you'll be merciful in real practical ways. Does that get tiring? Sure does. Is it often thankless? Yes. Ask parents who've been merciful with their children only to get slapped in the face. Is it always rewarding in this life? And not always. Because there's something called the cross that forms the shape of your mercy. But don't focus on all of those things. Focus on the promise. Blessed are the merciful. You get tired? Yes. Get discouraged? Yes. Get weary? Yes. You'll obtain mercy. And when the Good Samaritan gives you that for all eternity, wow, there's nothing like it. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to get to the heart of your heart. We love the fact that your heart is a treasure trove of mercies. And our Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your merciful self, O Good Samaritan Jesus, that we cannot but be those who are merciful to others and grant us the opportunity to be far more merciful to others than we ever imagined. Do beyond anything we could ask or even think for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.